Everyday Sublime, Shedding Light on Yin Yoga and Meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm glad you're here. As a Yin Yoga and Meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist, my intention is to offer an in-depth exploration of the intersections between Yin Yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And my hope is that the talks and conversations in this podcast will help support your practice as well as your teaching of Yin Yoga and meditation. Okay, in this episode, I'll be sharing some reflections from a silent meditation retreat that I sat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts last December. This episode is a bit more of a personal share on my part, but I hope that these reflections stir reflection in you and perhaps find some resonance in your own experience and practice. But before diving into those reflections, I just want to briefly appeal to your support for this podcast. And my ask is very simple. If you enjoy and find value in the podcast, please consider sharing an episode or a link to the podcast page, which is www.joshsummers.net forward slash podcast. You could share that with your network or friends. A few simple clicks on your end means a tremendous amount to me and is much appreciated. Of course, thank you for tuning in today, and I hope you enjoy today's reflections. Okay, Happy New Year! Here in the States, we continue to weather some interesting times. And if the political forecast is in any way accurate, things will only continue to get more interesting. And in many respects, the frequently offered advice that I've heard of taking care of yourself or looking after oneself, this is more important than ever, and it's really an imperative for personal sustainability. For myself, One of the ways I tried to look after myself this winter break was to attend a silent meditation retreat in early December. And this proved to be an invaluable step back. It offered a much needed chance to recharge and reassess things. I had mentioned in the closing episode of last season that this particular retreat would be an opportunity for me to say goodbye to my first Dharma teacher, Rodney Smith. I had heard previously that Rodney was retiring from teaching after this retreat, but it turns out my informant or my information had not been entirely correct. In fact, Rodney had already retired a year or two prior, and he was simply coming out of retirement now to teach this retreat as well as a few others in the future. In any event, I still had the sense that this might be the last time I would be able to sit a retreat with Rodney, and I wanted to share a few reflections on that experience. The first reflection has to do with the experience of being on a seven-day silent meditation retreat itself, something I think some of you have either done or are curious about doing. So I want to give you some thoughts around that. And the others, the other reflections pertain directly to my student-teacher relationship with Rodney. And those reflections are geared towards the practitioners, the meditation practitioners in the audience, as well as people who are engaged in teaching meditation and working with some of the deeper content um, that comes up in meditation. So on the side of being on retreat, 
That is being in a simplified, stripped-down environment where the whole intention is to cultivate a deep attention and introspection into oneself to cultivate insight and compassion and wisdom. Um, the first thing I want to talk about regarding this retreat is that the beginning of the retreat, as we entered into the communal agreement that we all took of being in silence together, thereby avoiding all unnecessary communication, both verbal and nonverbal, our retreat manager and teachers strongly encouraged everyone to turn in or hand over their smartphones and other digital gadgets. As the retreat leaders went on and on about the huge importance of not going into gadgets or screens, not texting, not emailing, not calling home, I remember being struck by my own cockiness, if you will. My, own, my plan was to simply power down my phone, power down my iPad, toss these things into my duffel bag, and slide the bag under my bed. And then, at the beginning of the retreat, I didn't feel I needed to lock up my phone. Actually, I felt personally that would be too drastic and almost infantilizing. And I realize uh, those of you that have sat a meditation retreat with me might hear a kind of hypocrisy in what I'm saying right now, because this recommendation of turning in one's phone is something that I give to my own retreatants when I lead a retreat. Um, it's something that I think is actually helpful and supportive to the practice. Now, you might have a sense of where I'm going here. As the retreat got going, as we settled into the first few days of the retreat, I felt like I was doing pretty well. Uh, I was relaxing into the structure and rhythm of the retreat, sitting, walking, occasionally eating. It's, very, it's, a, it's a meditative form uh, that I'm, I'm used to, having sat a lot of these retreats over the years. But on the third day, something strange hit me. I was heading back to my room after lunch, getting ready to take a nap, when suddenly the urge to check my email asserted itself with a pressing force. When I actually did get into my room, it was as though there was a massive magnetic force pulling at me towards the duffel bag that I had tossed under the bed. Now I shrugged it off initially and framed it simply as a temporary lapse in vulnerable weakness or something like that. But from that day on, every time I would head back to my room, I was aware of this growing nine desire to fire up my phone and check my email or messages or check the New York Times app. Now luckily, I had enough will to not follow through and turn on the phone. And I sincerely wished I had actually turned the damn thing over at the beginning of the retreat. But had I done that, I now reflect, had I actually handed the phone over, I would not also have had the opportunity to strengthen my will around the phone's kryptonite-like control over my attention. Now, this is not a flattering realization to come to. All in all, in the past, I've, when I've been on retreat, I've never experienced this kind of pull or longing for a phone. And this realization on this particular retreat seems to show the depth of my own developed addiction, if I'm going to be honest. And it was this experience or this recognition of the, this addiction 
as well as many recommendations I've seen in blogs that have talked about the attentional hazards that our gadgets generate. Realizing this has inspired me to try, in the new year, a few hacks. So to make my phone less of a pocket-sized slot machine, as one author put it, I've silenced all notifications. And I'm mentioning this because I'm encouraging you to potentially consider something similar. I silenced all notifications, and the more drastic measure was that I removed email. I removed the email or disabled the email app on my phone. And this move has been illuminating. I'm genuinely amazed by how much less enticing my phone is now. Other than that, this year, I'm adding two more simplistic stipulations to my relationship to screens. These have also come to me through a variety of different blog recommendations. But these other two stipulations are, one, to not go on a screen until after I've completed my morning meditation. So I usually wake up, make a cup of coffee, read something while I sip my coffee, and then the next thing on my to-do list or the next action on my daily agenda is to sit and meditate. So I, like many, have found that turning on a screen um, while the kettle's boiling or while something is getting ready, uh, the screen tends to become the default activity that we turn to when nothing else particularly exciting is going on. So I'm going to rest and practice within that pause, within the kind of the boredom of unfilled space, and not turn on a screen until after I meditate. The other bookend of the day for this type of uh, screen usage is that I'm going to endeavor to turn off all screens by 6 p.m., giving my attention at least 12 hours of screen-free existence. Now, those two things sound quite simple, to not turn on screens until my morning meditation has been completed and to turn screens off by 6 p.m. But I've tried implementations very much like these in the past, only to find that by two or three days into my commitment, they've all been but abandoned. Now, if that sounds like you, I want to try to give us both a little bit of a pep talk. For me, just because something hasn't worked out in the past doesn't mean it will never work out. And especially with the degree to which I felt what I would call the undignity, the undignified compulsivity of the urge to check phones, screens, email, etc. on this retreat, this has left in me a lasting impression, a kind of counter-urge, a greater aspiration to truly reform my relationship to screens. So if you're at all motivated to do something similar, I wholeheartedly invite you to participate along with me and let me know how it goes. So, so far, these insights and, and commitments that arose around technology for me on this retreat, I realize are fairly prosaic. But I'd also like to share some reflections I had from this retreat that would fall under the category of spiritual and philosophical concerns. And my intention here is to raise these concerns using myself as an example 
but to invite you to also wrestle with these issues with me. For I believe that any seeker who dives deep enough into these particular practices of silent meditation, particularly on a retreat, that these topics will inevitably come up. So here's what came up for me. For the last few years, a topic that has held me captive, I'd say, it's been really captivating, is what I call the relationship between spiritual assumptions and preconceptions and the way someone approaches their actual practice. So the relationship between an idea about what the practice is supposed to do and how someone approaches their actual practice. And this could apply to yoga or meditation. As a simple example to illustrate what I'm getting at, let's consider some assumptions around physical alignment. That is physical alignment while doing asana or yoga postures. Many styles of yoga begin with the view that there is a precise, correct way that everyone should be able to manipulate their body into. That there is somehow kind of a platonic ideal of the pose that the practitioner is doing their very best to replicate. And in so doing, this preconception will influence their interpretation of their experience of trying to do the pose. For example, an inability to do a pose might be interpreted as tightness or energetic blockage without ever questioning the preliminary assumption that everyone should be able to do the pose in the first place. In spirituality in general, this might come up with a variety of commonly held views about where a spiritual path is supposed to lead. Some say the path should lead to an experience of oneness, or to an experience of eternal, blissful being, or to an understanding of a radically pure awareness, or true self with a capital S, you will find these views throughout the mystical dimensions of most, if not all, of the world's religions. And I am neither confirming nor denying the veracity of these claims. As I want to make clear, what I'm more interested in is how these views go on to influence how you, the practitioner, or how I, the practitioner, approach their practice and consequently relate to the experiences that occur during their practice as a result of these views. So for example, again, if one starts practice with a view that at the very core of one's being there exists a pure, eternal, unchanging soul, and that the trajectory of your practice is to reveal or uncover or attain that pure, unchanging soul, then what happens when this practitioner encounters experiences and phenomena that aren't so pure, that are definitively transient and impermanent? Often what happens is that these changing experiences are treated in a rather dismissive fashion. So take thought, for example. In meditative practice, thoughts tend to be viewed as niggling distractions, nothing more than superfluous static that obstruct perception of the true radiant nature of things or the true radiant nature of self. Or as Sam Harris likes to say these days, thoughts are nothing more than the excretions of the brain. I do like that as much as I disagree with it. Now again, the point of this exercise is not to argue with the relevance of these uh, claims. More as both a practitioner and a teacher, I'm really interested in how these particular views 
condition one's relationship to practice itself. And this is something that I think it's important for both students and teachers to do in an ongoing way. Okay, so let me put this in context for what happened during my retreat with Rodney. On this particular retreat, which was co-led by two teachers I've sat with probably at least a dozen or so times, these teachers are Rodney Smith, as I've mentioned, and Narayan Liebenson, who is the guiding teacher at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, not far from where I live in Boston. As co-leaders, they tend to complement each other quite well. Rodney is much more the firebrand. He's passionate that everyone there, everyone that's in attendance on this retreat should attain awakening, not yesterday, not tomorrow, but now. And Narayan, the more nurturing patient of the pair, encourages the natural unfolding of wisdom in due time. So I hope to host both of them on the podcast this year if possible. But in this reflection, I want to focus in on two things with regards to Rodney, because it was with Rodney that I wrestled the most during this retreat. So Rodney, and this has been pointed out to me by others, Rodney is a bit of an unusual Dharma teacher. Stylistically, he comes off more like a charismatic evangelist than an equanimous Buddhist. And in many ways, Rodney's style is illustrative of a kind of teacher who's had a particular experience that's transformed them, that's illuminated their perception of the world, and they teach directly from that experience, trying to get others to also have that experience. In this case, Rodney now openly claims a kind of enlightenment in which a dimension of reality has become known to him. He often refers to this dimension as the formless, to contrast it to the conventional world of form, which would be the world of objects, sights, sounds, smells, etc., that reveal itself, that reveals itself to our senses. The formless, at least for Rodney, is something entirely different. It's a dimension of timeless, spaceless, infinite peace and stillness. But the formless is not separate from the world of form, but rather because unenlightened worldlings like myself are so transfixed and mesmerized by the world of objects and form, we don't notice or apprehend the magical mystery of the groundless ground beneath, above, and within the world of form, namely the formless. So the first part of my inner argument with Rodney was on the grounds of what will be called a metaphysical dispute. Metaphysics is that branch of philosophy that deals with the ultimate nature of reality. And for Rodney, the Buddhist path of ending one's suffering in the world is predicated on realizing this metaphysical dimension that he calls the formless. And to be fair, to be fully fair to Rodney, there are sections of the early Buddhist teachings that make reference to things such as the unborn or the undying or to the unconditioned. Citations that Rodney repeated throughout the retreat to give you a sense of these types of quotes, there was one that I've heard elsewhere too, where the Buddha apparently said, quote, if there were no unborn, undying, or unconditioned, there would be no freedom from the born, the dying, the conditioned. To put it 
or translate this into Rodney's language, if there was no formless, there would be no freedom, no peace separate from form. And I have to say, Rodney is by no means alone here. There are many Buddhist traditions that advocate a similar metaphysic in terms of what needs to be apprehended, attained, or realized for true liberation to occur. Now, where this becomes a philosophical problem, and a pragmatic problem, I would argue, is when you try to reconcile this notion of freedom, where freedom is predicated on some kind of absolute dimension, and how do you reconcile that with other passages in the early Buddhist canon where the Buddha seems to clearly admonish anyone from getting wrapped up in any kind of metaphysical speculation whatsoever? In this perspective or interpretation, the Buddha isn't advocating the realization of some eternal dimension of reality, such as Rodney is with the formless, but rather the Buddha is pointing to a more pragmatic understanding of how the mind generates unnecessary psychological suffering for itself and how it can learn to relinquish that unnecessary or problematic habit. So I hope you can see here the spiritual fork in the path that I'm presenting. Do you direct your attention towards uncovering a formless eternal dimension? one that is once it is attained will liberate you from all suffering? Or do you direct your attention and roll up your sleeves to investigate how your mind self-inflicts unnecessary torment with the very conditions of this experience? At this point in my practice, I'm more, to be transparent, I'm more in the mode of the latter view, attempting to develop a more comprehensive understanding of the myriad ways I make life harder than it need to be. And connected to that, I'm now somewhat more skeptical, at least more skeptical than I used to be, about the kind of metaphysical claims that teachers like Rodney make. Although I do have to say, I'm still open to the possibility of those metaphysical claims proving to be true somehow at some point. At any rate, if I were to sum up my first quibble with Rodney, it would be on this issue of metaphysics. He, like others, have made the Buddha, in my mind, into a metaphysician, which is a position virtually indistinguishable from the metaphysics of other spiritual practices or other spiritual paths like Advaita Vedanta, a view that the Buddha vociferously argued against. So there is this internal contradiction of sorts. Later in the season with some of my upcoming guests, I look forward to revisiting these philosophical issues. But the second part, and this is what I want to get into now, the second part of my quibble with Rodney was on grounds of pedagogy. That is his approach to teaching itself. And this is where I really do see quite frequently a direct line connecting one's metaphysical views to one's approach to practice, and in Rodney's case, to how one teaches. Based on his experience and understanding, i.e. his deep conviction of the truth of his experience, Rodney simply tries to point out the self-evident truth of the formless over and over again. For Rodney, all sensation, all sound, all thought, that is, all experience phenomena, arise and cease within a pervasive silent stillness he called the formless. 
So in practice, one was instructed to use all experience to, as a way to notice the timeless emptiness within which that experience arose and ceased. No great interest or value was given to the experience itself. The story or meaning or content of the experience was irrelevant to the field of formless silence that beheld it. Now years back, and I really have to confess this here, years back, I was very, very much enamored with this approach. I had no interest in getting caught up in the content of my experience or story. Instead, I wanted only a way to transcend and release myself from the machinations of my mind. But I've now come to see problematic issues with this approach, mainly with regards to what is called spiritual bypassing. In spiritual bypassing, the seeker attempts to bypass their personal pain by focusing their sights on a spiritual ideal, say of oneness or stillness or, or transcendence. And if you've studied with me recently, you know that I now favor what I would call a curious exploration given towards all experience, looking into the meaning and views that arise in practice. I think actually this is what the Buddha was getting at when he referred to the middle path, a path between absolute views of essentialism or eternalism and their opposite views of nihilism, whereby things are rendered meaningless. But in this shift towards practice, there's also a different view of the role of the teacher. And this is where I come down on Rodney a little bit more harshly. Rather than the teacher being the, the authority over the student's experience and trying to get the student to get it, like in the case of Rodney, where he's trying to get the students to apprehend the formulas, I think it is far more useful, at least the way I see things now, I think it's far more useful for the teacher to facilitate a deepening understanding of the student's actual experience, whereby the student is the ultimate authority on their own experience not the teacher. For this shift in my approach to practice and teaching, I owe a debt of gratitude to my current teacher, Jason Siff. And even though I will quibble with Rodney about his metaphysics and his style of teaching, I'm also, I need to say, I'm also extremely grateful for my many encounters with his passion for the Dharma and the sincerity of his character. So to conclude here, my main intention for sharing these reflections with you is to give you a sense, perhaps, of permission to wrestle with teachers or your teachers or teachings or teachings you've taken on, as well as views that you hold yourself about practice. To wrestle with these issues as I've tried to model in my own ongoing struggles here. If these teachings, I firmly believe this, if these teachings are to amount to anything in our lives they have to go beyond ideas that we passively receive from outside. They need to be tested. These teachings need to be tested in the fire of our own experience and under, ultimately in our own understanding. And as I now feel, they ultimately need to remain open. This is a key point. They ultimately need to remain open to reformulation and reevaluation again and again. So I realize these reflections may raise more questions than they actually answer. And in, and in anticipation of that, I'd like to leave you with 
some advice I heard years back, actually on my very first retreat with Rodney Smith in 2001. It's a passage from the Austrian poet Rilke in his letters to a young poet, where Rilke says, quote, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue, do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now, Rilke says. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So those are some reflections I had on my retreat, and I do hope that they stir some valuable reflection and investigation for you. In the next episode of Everyday Sublime, I will continue with the third installment of my four-part conversation with the wonderful Bernie Clark. In that episode, I ask Bernie about specific issues that affect how to think about yin yoga with both developing and aging populations. It's another very rich episode, and I look forward to sharing that with you then. If my reflections on silent retreats stoked your own curiosity to potentially attend a silent retreat, my co-pilot Terry Coburn and I will be leading three silent meditation and yin yoga retreats in 2019. Two retreats are held in Leiden, Massachusetts, which is a gorgeously bucolic part of Western Massachusetts. The retreat in July is already full with a waitlist, but in response to this demand, we've added a second retreat in early December 2019. And if you're based in Europe, we'll be offering a retreat in September at a great center just outside of Granada, Spain. More information on all those retreats can be found at www.joshsummers.net forward slash events forward slash retreats. I realize that's a bit of a mouthful, so there will be a link in the show notes for that. And lastly, if you're interested in training in or studying yin yoga with me in 2019, please check out yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. As always, thank you so much for your enthusiasm for yin yoga and your support of this podcast. I'll see you in the next episode.